This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. My guest today is Moti Inbari, Associate Professor of Religion at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Professor Inbari is a scholar of Jewish fundamentalism, and he joins me today to discuss his most recent book, Jewish Radical Ultra-Orthodoxy Confronts Modernity, Zionism, and Women's Equality, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. In his book, Professor Inbari delves into correspondence and recently obtained archival materials to detail the decisive influence on ultra-Orthodox life of prominent 20th century leaders. The most prominent are Rabbi Amram Blau, founder of the anti-Zionist Neture Karta movement, and Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, who was head of the Satmar Hasidic sect in New York. Professor Inbari concludes with an analysis of contemporary trends in radical ultra-Orthodoxy and a comparison between those trends and Messianic religious Zionism and religious zealotry during the Second Temple period. Professor Inbari documents the ultra-Orthodox encounter with modernity, which continues to become more nuanced and complex, even as ultra-Orthodox leaders become more insistent and extreme in their attempts to resist change. Professor Inbari, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your background, your academic background, and how you became interested in the subject of Jewish ultra-Orthodoxy? Okay, um, I, uh, I was born and raised in Jerusalem into a secular family, not an Orthodox family. And as someone who was living in Jerusalem, you cannot ignore the strong influence of Orthodoxy on the city's population. And um, I was just uh, interested in learning more about Orthodox. And the, the current research that you, we are going to talk about today is actually my third book, my first and second books were on religious Zionism, and uh, which is another Orthodox movement mm-hmm. uh, that supports the state of Israel. It's like ultra Zionist movement, and um, the current research is kind of expanding the, 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 my investigation into Orthodoxy and different aspects of Orthodoxy, and uh, now with ultra Orthodoxy, the way in which I found myself studying this research was actually by kind of a coincidence. Uh, in, I, I was a postdoctoral fellow at Brandeis University between 2007 and 2009, and um, during that period, Boston University has acquired Rabbi Blau, the founder of uh, Neturei Karta. Boston University has acquired this personal archive, 
as, as someone who is interested in orthodoxy and I was writing my research on religious Zionism, I was interested in go to go to that archive and to see what they found and this have this is the this is how my research has started going over this personal archive and studying Neture Karta and it's from the inside you know from the kishkes of of uh, these personal correspondence I I was able to to construct two chapters and after I wrote these two chapters I figured that I I might as well expand it into a whole book Could you Satmar, Could you yes. uh detail for us how um how Boston University came into possession of that, because as you point out, I think in, in the book, um, you know, these are very closed communities that don't often um, let their innermost kishkis, as you say, be viewed by the secular world. How did Boston University get this material? Yes. So a, <laughs> there is the long and the short answer. The okay. short answer would be through Elie Wiesel's connections. Ah, but okay. the long answer is even more interesting. Okay. So... It, it, it all comes to Elie Wiesel. You know, Elie Wiesel himself was born into a Hasidic uh, community in Hungary, which was kind of like the one that, we, that I've studied in this book. But uh, this was not his old connections that brought him this, in, this uh, archive, but the new connections. He actually had a student, a doctoral student, that he was advising, and the father of this doctoral student has obtained this archive from Amram Blow's second wife. So Amram Bloy, the founder of Neture Karta, was, uh, was remarried after his first wife died, and um, he married a very famous convert by the name of Ruth Ben David. Mm-hmm. And there was a big dispute between his children from his first wife and the second wife. The children didn't like the second wife and didn't want their father to get married with her. So after he died, she didn't want her, his children to to obtain, you know, his, his letters and so on. So she hid them with the father of that uh, doctoral student. And after that father died, the children went to the attic and found this archive and didn't know what to do with it. So since uh, there was, he was studying in Boston University, he said, well, I might as well donate it to Boston University. So <laughs> this is how it... <laughs> That's a very <laughs> circuitous and interesting story, and I hope we'll talk about uh, Ruth Ben-David uh, later on in this interview. But I wonder if you could, uh, for those uh, of our listeners who may not know much about ultra-Orthodoxy, what is it exactly? How would you define it, and what differentiates it from Zionist... Orthodoxy or modern orthodoxy, just for two examples. Yes, sure. Yes, so ultra-Orthodox Jews would argue that they are the holders of pure Judaism. This is how Judaism used to be before the age of change, the 19th century and modernity. But, uh, of course, this is much more complex than that. So once new possibilities of Jewish identities have emerged in Europe, in, during the 19th century years with Haskalah or Reform Judaism and later Bund or Zionism, uh, those who want to remain uh, loyal to tradition and to, to be, stay observant have uh, decided to, to create some kind of barrier between themselves and the rest of the Jewish community. And so this is where they re-emerged 
that recreated the Jewish ghetto. And so during the modern period, the Jewish ghetto no longer existed. Mm-hmm. And Jews were allowed to leave the ghetto and be part of the of societies in which they've lived in. But Orthodox Jews decided to remain in a, some kind of an enclave, an enclave, a, a ghetto, where they would be protected from the influences of uh, of modern uh, of the modern world, and this is how ultra-orthodoxy has emerged. And the, the, the location at which it, 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 will, it has emerged was in Hungary, in, in, in Poland, and in Russia. Now, the difference between the, the, the movements is, the, uh, is uh, within the attitude toward different aspects of change. So uh, modern orthodoxy, or it used to be called neo-orthodoxy, was the type of orthodoxy that was... Uh, Active in Germany, so in in, in new orthodoxy later turned into modern orthodoxy. There was this openness to, for um, secular education, so you can still become. So the motto was to you can still be an orthodox Jew and be an educated Jew, be a lawyer, be a physician, be all kinds of modern professions. Mm-hmm. Uh, orthodoxy was much more, which was much more suspicious toward these ed- educational changes. And religious Zionism or Zionist orthodoxy has argued a similar argument that you can still be an orthodox and to accept the Jewish national movement and be part of the Jewish national movement, the Zionist movement. Ultra-orthodoxy on its behalf was much more suspicious towards Zionism and eventually it made Zionism to be one of its biggest enemies. Interesting. So uh, what are the textual bases for ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionism? Okay, so anti-Zionist ultra-Orthodoxy is based on several, uh, on several reasons. First, they didn't like the secular nature of the Zionist pioneers. Mm-hmm. Of course, they are Orthodox and they want people to remain loyal to traditions and, and religious laws, and the Zionists were secular and even anti-religious, so this is one level of hostility. But on another level, there is much deeper um, issue here, which is that according to, to, to the way in which Jews understood the messianic area, or what would happen when the Messiah would come, is that is there was an expectation that God will send from heaven a Messiah that would perform miracles and will take the Jews from their exile back into their ancient land to to reestablish the, the ancient Jewish monarchy, uh, as it's written in, the, in our sacred text. So when the Zionists came and said, we want to immigrate to Palestine and we want to establish a Jewish state for the Jewish people that would govern by secular laws, it was viewed as, um, as even as a rebellion against God's authority, because the Jewish scriptures have anticipated that all of this would happen through a miracle and not through human actions. And, and therefore, uh, ultra-orthodoxy developed this hostility toward Zionism as a rebellion against God, as, um, as a disbelief that God can perform miracles and God can redeem the Jews through, you know, through an act that will be beyond nature. Mm-hmm. And this is the source of this opposition. So if, if that were the case, it's really interesting because dating back to even the late 19th century, there were Orthodox communities in Palestine and then in British Mandate Palestine. What were relations like between European ultra-Orthodox communities and those in Palestine, especially between the First and Second World Wars? Yes, so 
course, uh, so we are referring here to the old Yeshuv. Yes. So, the, so there is this um, belief in Jewish tradition and custom that the land of Israel, yes, as it's referred to, is, is a holy land. And from the land of Israel, when you pray in the land of Israel, your prayers are heard louder in heaven. And especially in sacred cities like Jerusalem, Safed, Hebron, um, and so. Uh, so throughout the years, there is a record that there was some kind of a community of Jews living in Palestine for hundreds of years. This was a small community. And the purpose of this community was to be Torah scholars. So they will pray, and they would um, they will pray for for the sake of the Jewish people as a whole. And since their prayers are conducted from Jerusalem, and since they are so holy in their nature, because the, all they do is just devote themselves to Torah, Torah study, God will listen to their prayers, and He will bring redemption for the Jewish people. So this is an, an old Jewish understanding of of what does it mean to live in, in, uh, in the land of Israel. Um, and so it, it has to be for, for sacred purposes. And, and the purpose of the diaspora, Jewish diaspora, is to, is to support this community, small community of Torah scholars, and support them financially so they can do it, that they can live their lives there, mm-hmm. devoted only for to the study of the Torah. And, and once the Zionist community was starting to establish, well, Men and women went, immigrated to Palestine in order to establish colonies and to be productive and to walk the land and to be farmers. This was used such an opposition to what Jews throughout generations understood the role of Jews in the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. This was such a, this was such a, like an opposition to that. So into this, um, cauldron, which is already politically active and contentious, comes the amazing personality of Amram Blau, uh, who is the founding figure of the Nature Karta movement. Can you tell us something about him personally and how he, uh, how his, uh, personal style and idiosyncratic, powerful personality influenced the community that he helped to create? Yeah. So Amram, Blau was a zealot, <laughs> by uh-huh. the true meaning of the, of the term, yes. Yeah? So he took everything to the extreme. And he was, a, he was oppositional to any type of change and any type of compromise. So when he saw the, the leadership of ultra-orthodoxy making compromises to any type of moderation or change, even when they, they didn't really want this change, but the it was forced on them, uh, he stood up and he demonstrated against any type of moderation and change. And, and his zealotry, you know, that he is so genuine to pure ideas and he's never willing to compromise on any type of, of moderation uh, that is needed, uh, made him a hero, yes? It's like mm-hmm. a, a superhero. <laughs> yeah. Like a super, yes. He is not... You cannot, uh, um, you cannot uh, make him uh, le- less pure. Yes, I, mm-hmm. I can't even find the word for that mm-hmm. at this point. Yes, but he's like he's a, he's a pure zealot. Yeah. No one, a person that never w- is willing to compromise. Okay, and uh, how did this influence the community? In fact, how did it even how did he even manage to build a community given the extremity of here's 
personality, the confrontational nature uh, with which he approached conflict. How, how did a community form around him? Yeah, so this is a very interesting society, society's uh, um, dynamics. Um, because the, the community, the ultra-Orthodox community realized that they are a small minority inside Israel or Palestine, mandatory Palestine, the Jewish mandatory Palestine, and they cannot um, impose their worldview on the greater society. So they wanted to just, so they realized that they need to make some compromises in their lifestyle, and what they're looking best is just to try to segregate themselves from the rest of of, uh, of the society. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they realized that this is this is compromise, and this is not a perfect, ideal way of life. And when Amram Bloy came and started demonstrating, and his, the, his first big demonstrations were against um, against uh, modesty, that Jewish women were becoming less modest in his eyes. And so the ultra-Orthodox society, and later on, the ultra-Orthodox society, I'm sorry, the ultra-Orthodox society was a was reluctant to follow him because, you know, in their view, he was right. Yes, a Jewish women should be modest in their view. And in their view, Jews should not walk on the Sabbath, and Jews should not drive their cars on the Sabbath, and Jews should not play soccer on Sabbath, and uh, Jews should not uh, go to swimming pools, uh, men and women together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was, he was taking on principal uh, subjects, and he was demonstrating o- over them, and the ultra-Orthodox community as a whole was not very happy to see him demonstrate, but they, but they agreed that he was right, that his, um, his, um, the goals that he had selected for himself were correct, and they should be in opposition to them. Uh, and therefore, he was able to obtain this, um, this status that is not just a crazy, radical, you know, zealot, Mm-hmm. But there's a point behind what he's making, and so therefore, at least they need to support him through silence and you know through silent support. So, and it, one other thing that's clear from your work is that part of the perhaps the main uh, aspect that influences um, the extremity of this view is that the ultra orthodox community plays a critical role in the in the onset of the messianic era. And one theme of your work is the influence of messianism on ultra-orthodox political and cultural orientation. And I know it's a massive topic, but can you just shed some light for us on how the ultra-orthodox view the relationship between their practices and the hoped-for advent of the messianic era? Yes, so this is a very good point, and I think this is one of the big uh, discoveries of my research. So until recently, uh, scholars have uh, viewed religious Zionism as the holder of the messianic uh, position. Mm-hmm. That um, by joining the Zionist movement, they would uh, help bring about the advent of the messianic area through the reconstruction of the Jewish uh, kingdom as the Jewish monarchy as it used to be in ancient times. And this this these steps would bring about into a fulfillment that God will complete the job that mankind is is doing through the Zionist enterprise. Right. And ultra-orthodoxy basically have offered a mirror image to religious Zionism. 
And so there are two, uh, two major, uh, um, say, there are two major, um, well, I can't find the word, there are two major models, uh-huh. there are two major models to uh, how would the Messiah come at the end of days. So the most common model which I referred to earlier is that God will send the righteous Messiah through an act of miracles. And this is uh, the one that I refer to as the apocalyptical messianism. So all that mankind needs to do in that regard is to be righteous and to observe the religious laws and to be holy. And when God would uh, see that people are so holy, he will send the righteous Messiah from heaven. And this is, um, and this is how the end of days would uh, come to be. Mm-hmm. And this is one model. The second model is based on Maimonides, that... Um, that gives some leverage for mankind to to take some action in order to bring the Messiah. And there are all kinds of interpretations of Maimonides' uh, uh, ideas, but uh, religious Zionists basically adopted the argument that that the Messianic age can be uh, achieved through human action by taking possession of the ancient land and establishing the uh, kingdom, and re-establishing a temple in Jerusalem, and this would bring about the Messianic Age. Okay. So ultra-Orthodoxy um, responded to religious Zionism by arguing that um, this is false Messianism, and if you truly want to bring the Messiah, what you really need to do is to immerse yourself in Torah study. And this is the best security for for gaining a true messianic uh, fulfillment, uh, rather than you know taking actions by human that can be faulty, that can make yeah. mistakes. So yeah. if you want a perfect messianic area, you should be just in, um, engaged in Torah study and in opposition to Zionism, which can was viewed as false messianism. So um, yes, this, this subgroup that I have studied. Uh, the radical ultra-orthodox basically was also highly engaged in messianic expectations. They really believed that this is something that's going to take place soon. And the way for them to make it happen was to be extreme, to take everything to, to the extreme, uh, just to be sure that you're righteous enough. So the righteousness was to the extreme. No moderation, no compromises, nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And this would be the best guarantee that the Messiah would really come. So, and you... So there appears to be an inherent conflict between apocalyptic and I guess what you would call maybe eschatological messianism. One believes, or or Zionist, you know, ultra-Orthodox Zionist messianism, one being that human activity can only interfere with the advent of the Messiah, and the other believing that human activity is essential to it. And do there continue to be conflicts between these two um, uh, sort of orientations? Yeah, this is an ideological uh, debate mm-hmm. that, uh, that reflects on actions. Yes, so so the religious Zionist argument uh, uh, that um, actions can bring the Messiah uh, would be translated into settlements, into uh, supporting right-wing politics in Israel. Uh-huh. Yeah. Whereas the ultra-Orthodox response to this would be that anti-Zionism and anti-politics would be the the path to bring the Messiah. So, so, so that explains then why the Nature Carta movement took the extraordinary step uh, of sending uh, a delegation to Iran 
uh, to join in an anti-Zionist, uh, anti-Israel uh, conference. Can that gained a great deal of attention when it happened? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. This is an ongoing argument that uh, ultra orthodoxy is making that that uh, Zionism is not uh, advancing the coming of the Messiah. Just the contrary, it 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 um, it pushes it back and it makes the the journey even longer. So if you want to if you want to see the Messiah uh, walking on earth uh, in your lifetime, what you need to do is to be an anti-Zionist mm-hmm. and <laughs> and to make the state of Israel uh, disappear, dismantle. This would be the true path to bring righteous Messiah to to earth. So and this is so uh, they have been doing this for a long period of time. They're opposing Israel, mm-hmm. uh, but the most radical, uh, I think, example example was what as you said when they sent a delegation to Tehran to to embrace you know, Holocaust deniers and and this was a really surreal yeah. view. Yeah, amazing considering uh, s- some of their leadership. Uh, and many of their communities had perished in the Holocaust. Exactly. Yeah. The Holocaust denials of all things. Yeah, amazing. So uh, that brings uh, me to one of the other prominent figures in the book, and that is uh, Yoel Teitelbaum, who became leader of the Satmar Hasidic sect and who established um, a large and and still uh, – prominent community that began in New York City and purchased land uh, outside of New York City, uh, which is now known as Kiryat Yoel. What makes Yoel Teitelbaum such an important figure in the ultra-Orthodox world? So um, we can say several things. First of all, he was able to reestablish from from nothing, from zero, the Hasidic uh, community, the Hungarian Hasidic community, and to, to establish it in, in New York City. And this is a very big Hasidic uh, movement. Uh, it's one of the largest, maybe some say it is the largest Hasidic movement that exists today. So just in terms of size and influence, it has become a very important uh, Hasidic um, movement. And, and when he came to New York, he couldn't find even ten ten men to pray with him in the synagogue. There was there were no Hasidic Jews living in the United States mm-hmm. at that point after the Holocaust. So this is one achievement that he has achieved. It's really an amazing achievement to revive to the Hasidic world after the Holocaust. Um, so this is one thing that makes him an important figure. But another is that he was the leader of the anti-Zionist movement within ultra-Orthodoxy. And the logic that he has uh, established in his books, uh, why ultra-Orthodoxy should not support Israel and should not just not be supportive, but to be anti, in opposition to Israel, has became the logic of ultra-Orthodoxy altogether. So ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel and other places, uh, they can, you know, live in peace with the state of Israel. They, some of them are even participating in Israeli politics and and so on. But uh, on the level of principle, they all oppose Zionism because they accepted the logic of your title poem. Hmm. And so this is why it is impo- he is an important figure. You you describe his personality vividly, too, and... and uh 
I, I would like to just ask you about that because the personalities of these leaders are so decisive in some respects in terms of how their movements develop. And one aspect of Teitelbaum's personality that you describe is what seems to be a, an obsessive compulsive disorder that manifests itself in his in his extreme quest for personal purity. And you relate this to his hesitancy to settle in Jerusalem. Uh, can you explain this and help us out, help us understand how this aspect of his personality informed his leadership style and enhanced his influence? You know, this is a very complicated uh, story to tell. But as, as you have, uh, have mentioned, um, the testimonies about him showed that he always felt like he's not good enough, that he's not pure enough. And um, and in the, in the psychology of, of his personality, I, I try to, to, to see how these feelings of not being a perfect person, not being pure enough, have influenced his decisions uh, throughout his life. And one of the important decisions that he has made as a Holocaust survivor was where to resettle, where to resettle. And his mm -hmm. first decision was to move to Jerusalem. And it made a lot of sense. You know, it was 1946, and he was in Switzerland, and he had to make a decision. And he decided to move to Jerusalem because Jerusalem already contained the Hasidic life, uh, the Hasidic courts, and it's ultra-orthodox city, and it seems most perfect that a person like him would join that community and would establish himself in that community. And so he did, and he moved to Jerusalem, and, but he became very sick during that period that he lived in Jerusalem, a life-threatening sickness. And after he was able to recuperate from his sickness, he basically packed his bags and left Jerusalem for good. Never to return to it. And I think the way he interpreted his sickness was that God is punishing him. And he was trying to figure out what, what was the, the, the wrongdoing that he has made uh, that uh, brought him his sickness. And um, the conclusion that he has reached that he is not pure enough to live in such a holy city uh, like Jerusalem. So he cannot be a part of it. So hmm. uh, basically, once he became uh, became well again, he just packed his bags and and moved as far as he could, and the destination was <laughs> And he, this is so interesting because he narrowly escaped uh, death during the Holocaust. In fact, he was even interned briefly at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. How, and it seems from the documentation that you have presented in the book that he had to make some kind of accommodation to the Zionist movement in order to affect his escape. How did that experience influence him? Yes, I think this is the, this is the key to understand his sense of being uh, unpure. Um, so this is, again, a very tragic story of Hungarian Jewry. Um, the Kastner train affair. Mm -hmm. So when 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 Germany occupied Hungary in 1944, uh, Germany was already losing the war on the Russian front, and um, and Germany and Germany tried to 
find more resources to, for, the, for its war efforts. And an idea came up to uh, Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, to try to blackmail uh, the Jewish community uh, to finance their war effort. And in that regard, he was willing to make a deal with the Jewish community in Hungary to save the Jewish community in return for money. And so to test this deal, the, the, Eichmann was willing to allow 1,600 uh, Jews to get on a train to, uh, from Budapest to Switzerland, to a neutral place. Actually, the, the destination was Lisbon. Mm. But uh, but eventually the train ended up in Switzerland. But uh, this was not as simple as it sounds. Uh, first, the destination of the train was actually Auschwitz, and then they changed the destination to uh, Bergen-Belsen instead. And after that, uh, the, the passengers were were sent to Switzerland. And in each destination and each location, Eichmann demanded more and more money was blackmailing the Jewish community. And the Jews knew that they are not, they, they're not sure that they can trust Eichmann. So um, when the first train, so it was, the, the, the plan was that there would be multiple trains that will eventually leave Budapest to a safe location. Uh, and this was a test case to see if it can happen. And so Rudolf Kastner, who was the head of the Jewish community in Budapest, came up with a list of 1,600 people uh, that would go on that train. Um, this was a very controversial uh, story. Uh, uh, a lot of people on this train were his family members and friends, and, um, and many of the Zionist leadership of, uh, of Hungary. And also Rabbi Teitelbaum was on the train. He, his wife, and his personal assistant, three seats on the train. Mm. And... Um, and I, I came to ask myself, uh, how come Kastner put a title bomb on the train? What's, what's the reason behind it? Because yeah. Kastner was anti-Zionist. Why should he support him? Secondly, why would title bomb take a seat on the train mm -hmm. that is, uh, that is uh, led by the Zionist uh, uh, leadership of Budapest? And the conclusions that I have reached through the clues and through the information that I found was that there was probably a deal that was made between Teitelbaum and Kastner's father-in-law, uh, in which Teitelbaum promised that he will not oppose the Zionist uh, movement, and in return, he would get a seat on the train. And I think this is where he felt unpure, and this is why I felt if, when he came to Jerusalem, he, he decided to leave after a short while, after he was sick, because he, he knew he had made a compromise, like he has made a bargain with the Satan, yes? Right, so, right. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and now this is why God punished him with his sickness. So there's a, there's this story that is standing behind his decisions to to uh, get to New York rather than Jerusalem. And, you know, this compromise, they tried to hide it. They tried to not to make it public. And I think, but, but you can't ignore all the evidence that is available there. And putting the pieces together got me into this conclusion that this was probably the case. Yeah, so interesting. And you conclude, as I pointed out at the beginning, you conclude your book with an analysis of contemporary trends in radical ultra-orthodoxy. What are the current trends that are impacting 
these communities? What are they focused on now? And what is the state uh, of their demographics? Are they growing? Are they shrinking? Uh, are they diversifying? What What are they like now? And what are their priorities? You know, again, it's very complex. So after Rabbi Teitelbaum died, his wife basically created a rebellion in the community and broke the community into two parts. And this is a, an amazing development because women in those Hasidic communities are so marginalized. Yeah. So, um, Rabbi Teitelboim, before he died, he had a stroke. And for a period of eight years, he was not functioning, basically. And so, he was still the leader of the, of the Hasidic community, but the way to communicate with him was through his wife. And um, after he died, the wife did not want to end her role as the, as the person that is in the middle between the rabbi and the community, and she started going up to his grave and, uh, and communicating with him, you know, through, <laughs> through telepathy. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yes, so basically she, have, she said, you know, there's no need to change anything because I can communicate with him uh, in heaven. And so he's still the leader of the, he can be still the leader of the community, and I will be the in-between person between... between the, the prophetic voice, as it were. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um majority of the members of the Hasidic community opposed this uh, uh, solution. But there was, a, there was a voice inside the community that actually supported it. And the Hasidic uh, Satmar basically broke into two. Those who followed the wife and those who followed the new leader uh, that came after him, he was uh, his cousin. And, um, and this schism remained after the, after the, the successor died himself, where his two children took, uh, each one of them took a part of the Satmar community uh, to lead. And so <laughs> this movement was just splitting and splitting. But mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the interesting things that are taking place in this movement is, besides the leadership disputes, is that this is a movement that is becoming uh, financially weaker and weaker and relying more and more on uh, welfare. Yeah. And, and um, so to, to what extent they can go uh, so poor without making any changes this is something that uh, has to be, you know, addressed. To some, at, until what point they can they can still rely on uh, on social security and so on. Um, so this is one major challenge for this community. Mm-hmm. Another, which is, but in polls that have con- were conducted by the Jewish community of New York, have revealed a very interesting trend among them. That about 30% of all uh, from Satmar uh, who responded to the poll have said that they actually support Israel very much. They were supposed to be anti-Zionist, and so right. you see a third of them are supportive of Israel. How can you explain it? And this is hard for me to explain, but I think that there are some underlying movements within this community of people who demand change, mm. who want to see things happening differently. They don't want to be so poor. They don't want to marginalize women so much. They want to, they want to take a different path. 
And one of the ways it is expressed is by actually supporting Israel. Like, you know, it's like a youth rebellion or something that is yeah. kind of taking place under the scene. And part of what has driven change in these communities, too, has it not has been the the need for women to get jobs and support the family economically because the men are studying Torah. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. And uh, how long can women be willing to, uh, from one hand, to take all the responsibilities of the house on themselves, including going to work and raising uh, 10 or 8 children, from one hand, from the other hand, has no voice, has no say in 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 the society. So I think these trends that they were trying to uh, to establish are just now being uh, starting to shake and, and and maybe it's not visible so much now but eventually it will I, I assume it will impact this community I wanted to go back before we concluded our interview and talk again about another very influential woman in the ultra orthodox world and that was Amram Bloy's second wife Ruth Ben David could you tell us a little bit about who she was and how she influenced uh, how she influenced the Naturi Karta movement. Okay, so Ruth Ben David is really an exceptional story. Um, she was born in France as Madeleine Frey, and she was French. Uh, she was Catholic, and in, in the late 1940s, she decided to convert to Judaism. Um, as a result of the Holocaust. I think she was really moved by what happened to Jews in, in Europe during the Holocaust, and as a response to that, she wanted to convert to Judaism. And um, her process of conversion has uh, taken several steps. She first converted through a reform conversion, and then later she went to conduct an orthodox conversion. And after conducting Orthodox conversion, she migrated, immigrated to Israel and eventually found herself in Mea Shearim, which is the ultra-Orthodox community of Jerusalem. And during the 1950s, there was a family dispute among ultra-Orthodox Jews. Uh, one family in which they immigrated to Israel from the Soviet Union. And there was, uh, the grandparents were Braslev Hasidim, um, but the mother and the father uh, decided to take a more lenient orthodox um, lifestyle and join the religious Zionist world. So the mother and the father asked uh, their grandparents to take care of their, of their son, Yosele, uh, for a period of time. And um, when they asked their son back, the grandfather refused to uh, give their son to the, to the parents because he, he disapproved of the educational uh, school that uh, the parents have signed up the kids. He wanted the son to be an ultra-orthodox, in ultra-orthodox schools, but the parents wanted him to be in a religious Zionist school. And so, so he gave the boy, he kidnapped the boy and gave him to Neturei Karta. Mm. Neturei Karta uh, hit the boy in Israel for a period of time. The police was on their tail. They were starting to track the boy. So eventually they decided that they didn't want this boy to be smuggled outside of Israel. And they have contacted Ruth and asked her to smuggle the boy outside of Israel because of her background. She was French 
she had a French passport and um and so and she was willing to do that and she took the boy and she smuggled him to Switzerland and then to France and eventually the boy ended up in New York and after a period of about two and a half years uh, Israel's uh, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion decided to recruit the Mossad to find the boy and after four months of searches uh, the Mossad was able to connect Ruth Ben-David to the smuggling to the affair and uh, they have kidnapped her in France. The Mossad kidnapped Ruth in France, uh, and she confessed and gave the boy to the Mossad, and they found the boy in New York mm. after three years of searches. And so uh, she, was, she has made a deal with the Mossad that she will not be prosecuted for her actions of kidnapping the boy in return of, uh, for returning the boy to his parents. And so when she came back to Israel after the events has, has ended, uh, she became a, a very famous person. And Amram Bloy just got uh, widowed. His wife died. And he wanted to marry her. <laughs> she, I didn't she, was that, his, she was younger than him by a couple of decades, right? Yes, she was younger than him. And he fell in love with her. And how do I know he fell in love with her? Because I found personal letters that he wrote to her, which were love letters, and they are, <laughs> and they are quoted in the book. And he just fell in love with her, and he wanted to marry her. She was much younger. She was probably a very pretty woman, and, and, uh, and, and so he wanted to marry her. His kids were outraged. How can the you know, 70-year-old dad marrying a 40-year-old woman and she's a convert on top of everything, mm-hmm. and uh, and they tried to foil the, the not to make it happen, and they went to the Supreme Court of the ultra orthodox community in Jerusalem, and that court made a ruling prohibiting him to marry her, but he was in love, so he decided to marry her anyway. The price was his excommunication, and uh, and this is a true love story. Amazing. Amazing. So my final question for you is, what will your upcoming work focus on? Will you continue to study uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox religion in diaspora and in Israel, or or will you turn your attention elsewhere? So um, I'm working on several projects, but I, I uh, I can say that I want to expand the research on Ruth Ben David and to develop it into a manuscript that will stand by itself. Um, I found a lot of resources on her at the archive in Boston, uh, including an unpublished autobiography. And this is one of the projects that I'm intending to take in the near future. And um, there's another book that I'm working on, which it takes me to a different place, which is uh, the study of ideological change. I am, um, I've, I've selected six different figures, more than Jewish uh, leaders who have made a radical change into their ideology in the 20th century. And I'm, I'm going through a very clear, very uh, deep analysis of what brought them to change. And for that purpose, I use uh, psychological theories of what uh, bring people to convert their religion. So in that regard, I'm, I'm comparing ideological change to conversion and uh, show that this is actually a very similar process. Those sound like fascinating works, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have a chance to discuss those as well. 
Yeah, thanks. My guest today has been Moti Inbari, Associate Professor of Religion at University of North Carolina at Pembroke, and we've discussed his book, Jewish Radical Ultra-Orthodoxy Confronts Modernity, Zionism, and Women's Equality, published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Professor Inbari, thank you so much for speaking with me today. 